Peter, can you uh, introduce yourself? That's a trick question. I'm Peter Kafka. I'm a senior correspondent at Recode. This is Peter today, but I'm not interested in today's Peter. Oh, no. I am much more interested in a Peter from the mid-90s. The Peter that's maybe wearing some cargo pants and all of those extra pockets are filled with dreams. Yeah. Uh, in 1997, I had literally packed up uh, everything I owned and threw it in a rental car and moved from Minneapolis to New York City to see if I could get a job working at a magazine. Peter showed up in New York ready to spend months searching for a job, but it was a different time. It turned out anyone could get a job at a magazine in 1997. So I started working at Forbes as a fact checker. Forbes as in the business magazine. Which meant young Peter, Twin Cities dust still speckled on his boots, suddenly found himself in a front row seat for the dot-com bubble. Did it feel like there was money sort of like pouring into the city of New York? It was hard It was hard for me to gauge because I'd just shown up off the turnip truck from Minneapolis. But I kept saying, is this how it's always been? Like people are overflowing out of restaurants. There's just a lot of money flowing. Listener, it was not how it had always been. The promise of the internet whistled through the city like a tantalizing spring breeze, predicting sunny days ahead. It was in the air, um, the, the idea that the internet was out there and the way that you could participate in it, even though there weren't that many internet companies in New York, is you could invest in internet companies. You literally would be in a cab and the cab driver would be explaining how he wasn't going to be driving the cab very long because he was putting his money in the market. Or I had a friend who wanted to make an indie movie and he needed to raise money. And he was confidently explaining to me that he had I don't know, 20 grand now, but at the end of the year, he would have 60 grand because he was going to put it in the market. People were treating it not even like a like a roulette wheel or a slot machine. They were treating it like a money-making device. And the question is, where did their confidence come from? We've talked about the companies and the venture capitalists that cashed in on the dot-com hype. But the bubble would not have gotten so big had it not been for regular folks getting caught up in the money rush. And why that happened and who lured them in is what we're talking about today. The enthusiasm that Peter's cab driver felt for the dot-com market was created by a unique confluence of forces from way outside of Silicon Valley. And it was decades in the making. I'm Julia Furlan. This is Go For Broke. I've been spending a lot more time in the woods this year than I ever have. And currently, there is actually a dump truck-sized pile of wood sitting outside that I'm trying to deal with because this is how invested I am in making fires. And what I've learned is there are three things you need to start a fire, my babies. You need fuel, you need air, and you need heat. And with this expertise, I bring you the perfect metaphor for this episode. Because if the dot-com hype is a perfect raging fire, then the fuel is an investing public. And the air is the bustling media business that Peter got in on. And the heat, well, I'm not going to spoil that for you just yet, but here's one tiny little hint. It comes from the belly of the beast, so to speak. But first, how an eager investing public fed this fiery dot-com hype? As in... The fuel. It certainly was not a normal thing for regular people, certainly not, you know, 
cab drivers and indie filmmakers to be thinking about playing in the market prior to the dot-com boom. To get the story of how this happened, I went to Rana Faruhar. You may remember Rana from our last episode. She's a business columnist, author, and economic analyst. If you go back to the 1970s when we had kind of a calmer, more boring economy, but probably a safer one, um, many people in this country, if they worked a, a, a certainly a union job, a public sector job, even many private sector jobs, had a defined benefit pension. A defined benefit pension is a retirement plan managed by your employer. You're promised a set monthly payment when you retire. Your company is in charge of all of that money before it even gets to you. So they're doing all the investing and the risk management. This was the most common form of retirement plan for decades in the post-World War II period. But starting in the 80s, in addition to door knockers and Jordash, a new kind of retirement plan came along. The retirement system shifted from a defined benefit to what's called a defined contribution. Otherwise known as the 401k a retirement account that you, the employee, make contributions to, and maybe if you're really lucky, your employer matches it. But most importantly, it's a fund that you are in charge of. You can manage the investing. The 401k has its own history that I won't get into here, but a simplified version of it is the 401k rose up through a small piece of tax code that Congress passed in 1978. And it became wildly popular just as U.S. cultural ideas about money shifted as well. Let's throw back for a moment to the 80s. It's the Reagan era. And of course, it's the era of one Gordon Gecko. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. This is a clip from the 1987 film Wall Street. Thanks to an Oscar-winning performance by Michael Douglas, this phrase, greed is good, came to define the 80s. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed. 401ks had that glimmer of greed in them. They had that shine of American individualism. I don't have, you know, mom and dad from, from corporate finance looking after me. I make my own decisions. Um, I can trade in a more risky way and possibly have more reward or I can be more conservative. The greed is good banner over the 80s was also held up by a very supportive market. You essentially had the longest bull market at that point in history. This is Brian McCullough. He's the author of How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone and host of the Internet History Podcast. So a bull market is a market on the rise. And this period was definitely a bull market. Essentially from 1982 until the bubble burst in 2000, stocks only go in one direction. They go up. And this catches the eyes of a very special American generation, the baby boomers. 76 million Americans. And if you do the math on, you know, they're born between 46 and 64, what happens in the 90s? Well, they're in their 40s. They're at their peak earnings range. They're also at the age where they're starting to think about retirement. And they're doing that thinking with their 401ks, plus optimism and a little sprinkle of greed. These are the forces that make a gigantic, eager investing public primed for dot-com hype. And it's how we get the fuel of millions of new dollars invested in the stock market by good old Jane and Joe Schmo. And so it's in the 90s that more than 50% of American households own stock for the first time. All of these people are now interested in advice about the stock market. 
this is when um, things like Money Magazine and Smart Money were, were popping up. So, yeah, you did have platforms coming up like E-Trade, um, you know, a number of day trading platforms coming into the market. It became faster, quicker, easier to light that fire that policymakers were already trying to set. Now we've arrived at the second thing you need to light this dot-com fire. The media is the air. And maybe you even think of it as hot air, present company excluded. Thank you very much. So that big group of new investors leads to relentless coverage of the market. Coverage and advice that works hard to stay interesting. The sober thing to do is to buy these index funds. They're very boring. Peter Kafka remembers the articles that Forbes and other magazines were publishing at the time. But that advice takes half a page. And the and it also doesn't sell magazines. So the rest of the magazine would be, here are five hot stocks, here are five hot companies. Stock market hype fills those pages. And soon enough, it powers entire television channels. So I was not a regular consumer of CNBC, but if you went to a bar, and I definitely went to bars, CNBC would be on in the bars, in the same way that ESPN is in bars now. In the same way that, like, you might glance over at the screen and see a football highlight or see who lost the baseball game or what the standings were for the NBA playoffs, you would also see that the Globe or some other company you had never heard of, by the way, had just gone public at $16 and was now worth $102. Hot companies were tracked like star pro athletes. IPOs were speculated over and celebrated like championship games. And the big thing was what the pop was, right? The stock went out at $16, but by the end of the day, it had closed at $32, a $16 pop. They had all these crazy pops. Pop as in how much a stock rose. The real implication was you need to get in on this internet investing thing because everyone else is making money. Look, these these other dudes at the bar are putting their money in the market. You should be doing it too. It was all so exciting, so everywhere, so poppy that the talking heads on these shows, on CNBC and so forth, they became celebrities. You know, if you become the person that people are relying on for stock picking advice while the market is going up, you're a very popular person. So popular, you may even become a muse. A certain Joey Ramone watched so much CNBC that he felt moved, nay, inspired, to write the instant classic Maria Bartiromo. Named in honor of the TV anchor who covered the stock market straight from the floors of the New York Stock Exchange. punk rock level cool to watch CNBC. Another kind of celebrity was born from the haze of relentless stock market coverage. The celebrity of the Wall Street analyst. Here is where we get into the third thing you need for a fire, heat from inside Wall Street. An analyst's day job, put very simply, was to know the market really well. Analysts put together reports about companies and their stock price, most often for brokers. 
and the brokers would use those reports to advise individual clients on their investment portfolios. Analysts made good guests on channels like CNBC because their job was to predict where the market would go and what stocks were going to do well. And people wanted predictions so that they could optimize their 401ks. Over the last several years and quarters, they've trended upwards. So if you can stand the volatility, they're good stocks to own. That is a snippet of the analyst Henry Blodgett on CNN in the late 90s. Henry was one of the most recognizable faces of dot-com hype. He rose to fame in 1998 by making a wild prediction about Amazon stock. I do remember the day that Henry Blodgett put the $400 um, price on Amazon. One of the other fact checkers um, in our bullpen was like, holy shit, what is this guy Blodgett doing? This call put Blodgett in the spotlight. And that was weird because Wall Street analysts weren't really known as flashy players in the financial industry. I mean, before the 90s, analysts were among the lowest ranking players in the game. So in the older days, the analyst was there basically working for the broker. And they were not the rock stars that they became eventually. Eric Danalo is a partner at the big time law firm Debevoise and Plimpton. He'll tell you the key thing to understand about analysts is that before the 90s, they were nobodies because the entire way that the finance industry worked was different. To understand how Wall Street works, we're going to talk about two types of firms, retail brokerage firms and investment banks. Analysts worked for the retail brokerage firms, which is where regular people would go if they wanted to buy stock. The analysts would prepare reports and inform those decisions. But they were not bringing business in, which is like the gold star for uh, Wall Street. Retail brokerage firms just connected the investor to the market. The firms made money on commissions, which is fine business, but not super flashy. At investment banks, on the other hand, the clients were companies. Companies looking to borrow money, to buy other companies, and in many cases, to go public. And companies needed banks to take them public. Big banks like Merrill Lynch, for example, would help businesses IPO by setting the share price and filing all the legal requirements. And those banks would charge a fee for doing that, a percentage of the IPO profits. So that meant as IPOs went wild like Netscapes, these banks made huge money. But like Eric says, analysts weren't in on that business before the 90s. They were tapping along behind the scenes at brokerage firms, getting slices of commissions. And then what happened was the government deregulated commissions. Deregulating commissions and a whole bunch of other rule changes in the securities industry disrupted the way these firms made money. The point is, as a result, through the 80s, some retail brokerage firms and investment banks merged. They formed a sort of perp plus shampoo and conditioner in one kind of thing. And in this all-in-one product, analysts like Henry became really important. Analysts still provided reports on stock for investor portfolios. But the real part of their job was to create research that would make the bank look better to a Yahoo or some other internet company that was going to go public and help them win that business. They were linchpins because... Nobody really understood the internet too well. The analysts would be there and say, come to us. We understand your business. We know how to put together a deal for an internet company. And and then and then what, what was implicit or explicit is, and then we have the people that will buy the stock. 
analysts were still rating stocks for Jane and Joe Schmo, but they're also aware of the business that the larger firm is doing, like which dot-com company their firm was planning on taking public and trying to make money with. If this sounds like a conflict of interest to you, that's because it is. There were supposed to be ethical boundaries between the analysts and the investment bankers bringing in dot-com clients. But Peter says often those boundaries were, uh, how do you say it, porous. If you poked around and talked to anybody who understood what was happening, you'd realize that there was no way that any analyst that worked for an investment bank was going to have a negative or critical report about a company that they were either trying to court to take public or had actually taken public. It just never happened. It was always, this is a great company. This unspoken rule, this is the heat. The conflict of interest sparked when analysts, former nobodies at brokerage firms, became somebodies, ever so close to the investment banking business. And you know what happens when you become a somebody. You get to go on TV. Some of the bigger stars were cheerleaders, not analysts. This is Lise Beyer, a former analyst herself, quoted in the PBS Frontline documentary, Con. Lise is describing how that open secret, every analyst's natural conflict of interest, was affecting messages to the public on CNN, CNBC, and the like. It was no longer about who was doing the best analysis, because the best analysis got you nowhere. It was who was being the best cheerleader for those companies. And this, my friends, is how you start a fire. With an eager public looking to invest, a media that needed to fill airtime and make celebrities out of Wall Street analysts, and analysts incentivized to cheer on the dot-com hype for their banks. As Brian McCullough puts it, using a different metaphor... It's like a perfect storm situation that, you know, if, if the dot-coms hadn't come around, someone would have had to invent them or something like them to, <laughs> for people to put that money in. This is such an important point. The 90s were just primed for dot-com hype. And you know what? The whole fiery system was working, more or less, from 98 until the beginning of 2000. The weird thing was is that you didn't you didn't have to be choosy. There's about a good 12 months to 18 months where you just pick any internet stock. And if you get in at the right time, you're probably going to double, 5x, 10x, you know, more than that. Like everything was just going in the same direction at the same time. If throw a throw a dart and if you hit a dot com, then you're probably gonna be okay. You know, until you're not. After the break, we dig into the moment that has hovered over our entire series up until this point, the moment of the dot-com crash and its fallout. The dot-com crash didn't happen in a single day, but there is one day that showed where things were going. I'm not saying Pets.com caused the bubble to burst, but it was one of the signals that the music was stopping. Brian McCullough, and actually a lot of people, would say that this signal was the loudest on February 11th, 2000, the day that Pets.com had its IPO. Pets had seen other dot-com companies explode on their IPO days, like Netscape did way back in 1995, and the Globe.com did in 1998. It was a day that made millionaires— and what with the Super Bowl ad and the Macy's parade, Pets.com was hoping for the same success. 
Pets.com was a well-known company. Everyone knows the Pets.com sock puppet. It was backed by major players. Amazon's backing them. Big VCs are backing them. Everyone knows this is one of the big companies. The Pets.com folks were all ready for a party. They wheeled out a TV for everybody to watch. In episode one, you heard a little bit about this day from Oscar Yuan, who was on the marketing team. It was celebratory. Like I said, it was the first time I had tried Dom Perignon. It's kind of exciting. And yet... I remember kind of as the day wore on, our stock price stuck. I remember the number very well. It was it stuck at $11. It doesn't have a first day pop. And at the time, if you read articles and, and things like that the day after, people are like, huh. This makes Pets.com the canary in the coal mine for the dot-com crash. It doesn't perform like it should. I mean, the stock doesn't drop dead, but what it does is just as dark. It sends a message that the hype is over. The fire has burnt out. Rana Faruhar and Brian McCullough say this is a critical shift in the market. There's always that one IPO that is the last one, right? You know, that that first domino. And it's like this in every bubble. I mean, you can name any of them in history where once one thing starts to look shaky, it's as though everyone kind of wakes up from this deep sleep and realizes, well, wait a minute. Oh, profits do matter. And that's the music stopping. That's, oh, there's one chair. Everyone sit down. There's one chair too little. Like, it's when everyone has to look around and is like, shit, we got to make money. Dot-com IPOs were so poppy before because everyone had a lot of confidence that the internet industry was just growing. But a market can only run on confidence for so long. Pets.com IPOs, just as that enthusiasm is waning. Dot-coms that had been burning through investor money trying to figure out their business models started to find that well of easy money was going dry. Over the next few months, dot-com after dot-com shuttered, including pets. Thousands of employees across the industry were laid off. And outside the industry, Americans who invested their savings and retirement funds in internet stock were hit really hard. And it's around this time, towards the end of 2000, that Eric Dinalo, that big-time lawyer you heard from before, gets a call from his father. So my father does, in fact, get, I guess, the kind of, if, this, if these were comic books, he would get the origin story credit. Greg Tanello is wondering what really goes into the ratings that analysts give to certain stocks. And he kind of was trying to work through in his mind, what's it, what's in it for them? Papa Dinalo asks because he's seen mixed messages come out of Wall Street. He's noticed some stocks that are not doing well are still getting positive ratings. Greg probably figures his son would know because in 2000, Eric is the head of the Investor Protection Bureau for the New York State Attorney General. But Eric doesn't know what's going on. So he gets permission from Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, yes, that Elliot Spitzer, to put together a small team to investigate the role of banking analysts. And they find a thread to pull on very quickly. I have this distinct recollection that I'm on the number six train, the Lexington line in Manhattan, and I'm reading the Wall Street Journal Eric's eye falls on an article about a lawsuit brought against Merrill Lynch by a pediatrician in Queens. This pediatrician, DeBasis Conjolal, said he lost half a million dollars due to the advice of his Merrill Lynch broker. That's a lot of money. But what was remarkable about the story to Eric was something else. It was that Merrill Lynch settled the lawsuit pretty quickly. 
they settled at a pretty high percentage of his claim without any apparently without any trial or much of a motion practice or anything it sounded like a very quick settlement they were being very generous and it made one wonder whether there was really something going on there something maybe Merrill Lynch didn't want to draw a bunch of attention to Eric and his team looked up the details of this case and they found that DeBasey's complaint centered around a company called Infospace. DeBasey's had bought Infospace stock for $122 a share, and then it dropped, like a stone, to below $10 a share. DeBasey said he wanted to sell as it plummeted, but his Merrill Lynch broker advised him not to, because his broker was getting reports from an analyst who suggested the stock was worth keeping. And that analyst was Henry Blodgett the guy from TV who called Amazon. DeBasey's lawyer claimed that Blodgett had an ulterior motive for giving Infospace a positive report. Infospace was supposedly planning to buy another company called GoToNet. And GoToNet was, what do you know, a Merrill Lynch client. Remember that a harmless open secret between analysts and investment bankers? The one about how analysts could maybe help lure companies in for banking business? Now that people like DeBasey's are losing hundreds of thousands of dollars, that open secret doesn't seem so harmless. So Eric's team, led by lawyer Bruce Topman, subpoenas the hell out of Merrill Lynch. They want anything and everything related to IPOs and the role of internet analysts. Documents flow in, including that relatively newfangled office novelty known as emails. And there, Eric's team meets an, um, shall we say, unfiltered version of Henry Blodgett. Well, because you started to see emails where Henry Blodgett and his team were wrestling with the concept about whether a stock was quality or not. You know, you remember they had the famous, you know, POS, which I didn't really know what that stood for when I first read it. Henry and his team had their own colorful code for stocks, as Eric told producer Megan Kinane. Wait, can you say what POS meant? Yeah, piece piece of excrement. (laughs) Other highlights from their emails include piece of junk, such a piece of crap, and going to five. That last one, at least, is actually official lingo. Merrill Lynch had like a five-point rating system. Like number one was the highest and five was the lowest. Five equals piece of shit. Or so you would think. If you began to look at the companies that he, that he and his team had some pretty either derogatory or deep qu- questions about, they had a number one buy rating on them. One of the stocks called a piece of shit, for example, was given a 2-1 rating. Those numbers are ratings for the short and long term. So 2-1 means accumulate this stock in the short term and buy in the long term. In October 2000, another stock was called a piece of junk. And yet it was given a 1-1 rating. Buy for the short term and the long term. Guess what stock I'm talking about? It's Infospace, the very stock DeBasis Conjolal invested in and then also thought was a piece of junk, but didn't sell because of that 1-1 rating. The plot is thickening, but I still don't get the motivation entirely. 
It's very clear to Eric that there is a huge gulf between what Henry's team is tap, tap, tapping away about in the emails and what they're saying to the public. But Eric doesn't have anyone saying why the gulf exists. It's obvious that Blodgett knows he's peddling garbage, but there's no smoking gun. Until... I remember Liz came into my office and she said, I think I found something really significant. Eric's colleague finds an incredible email from Blodgett. It's actually an email Blodgett forwarded to three investment bankers from a very frustrated broker. A broker who had eloquently written, I have had it with the analysts, postmortem downgrades or upgrades. This kind of hindsight my 13-year-old daughter can do us for free. Why in the hell are we paying these guys multi-million salaries for this kind of work? This broker was fielding complaints and probably despair from their own clients who trusted Merrill Lynch's ratings and, like DeBase's Conjolal, lost serious money. Henry, it turned out, was frustrated too. He'd gotten a lot of notes like this. So he forwarded this lovely one-off to his investment banking colleagues with his own message. And I quote, We are going to just start calling the stocks like we see them, no matter what the ancillary business consequences are. When Eric later quotes this email in an affidavit, he underlines that word, start. We will start calling the stock like we see them, as in, we have not been doing that before. It's very transparent. You can feel kind of the conflict right there springing from the pages and a little bit of almost pain from him that he's gone through all these justifications. What Eric means is that in earlier emails, he felt like Henry was talking himself into giving good ratings to piece of shit stocks. There's earlier emails or earlier in that memo, he talks about, are we rating the management? Are we rating company? Are we rating the potential of the company to be influential in the sector, but not the stock? But most purchasers of the stock, most viewers of CNBC, most listeners to their broker, like my father, thought that you were giving a recommendation saying this stock has, in my mind, as a Merrill Lynch representative, a higher chance of going up in value than other possibilities for you. What happens after Eric's team finds that remarkable email is a long, complicated legal and political process that I'm not going to detail here. For the purposes of this story, what you need to know is Eric's investigation into Henry Blodgett and other analysts leads to a bigger investigation into the conflicts of interest on Wall Street pushed by Attorney General Elliot Spitzer. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, also get in on the action. And by April 2003, Spitzer, the SEC, and other regulators finalize a $1.4 billion settlement with 10 Wall Street firms. As part of the deal, these major firms agree to make structural changes that would insulate analysts from any conflicts of interest. But only two actual analysts get called out in the settlement. It was a symbolic gesture, setting up a couple of folks to absorb the hit for many. The two analysts were Henry Blodgett and a dude named Jack Grubman. They were banned from the industry and had to pay fines. Henry coughed up $4 million. Just for reference, in 2000, the year the dot-com bubble burst, Henry's salary was $5 million. In 2001, he made $12 million, including a bonus. Are you recording this? Yeah, should I not be? No, go ahead. Okay. What's the Henry didn't speak to us for this episode, but he has spoken to my colleague Peter Kafka, who you heard at the top of the show. Henry was on Peter's podcast, Recode Media, in 2017. I once talked to you early on, and you said, 
we were emailing a lot. He said, I know I should not like email, but I still really love email. Uh, yes. It's a form you, of communication. Exactly. It's a wonderful form and dangerous, as we all know. I will catch people up who don't know who you are. You are the CEO of Business Insider. Is that the correct title? That's for correct. You? Years after his, let's call it, departure from Wall Street, Henry Blodgett co-founded the website Business Insider. And one of his first two hires happened to be a talented young journalist from Forbes named Peter Kafka. You, you had two goals here, it seems to me, when you started this business. One, which is, I need a job. I want to build something. I want to make money. And two, I want to reclaim my name. I want to be known as something other than disgraced former Wall Street analyst. Can you blame me? <laughs> yeah. Um, what happened to me was, I think... It was a product of the period. You know, obviously, I look back and say you're a moron for writing, calling a stock a piece of junk in email, taken out of context. It does look horrible, and and so forth. But it was a it was an incredibly public humiliation, and I did. I definitely wanted to. I didn't want to quit. I was young and a young family. I wanted to do try to do something else. Peter spent a lot of time working closely with Henry at Business Insider. They even sat next to each other at one point. So Peter sort of watched Henry remake himself and reflect on what happened. And I definitely have talked to Henry about this, and he will argue with a straight face. And I think he believes it, that he was never telling anyone to buy an individual stock. That even when he put a buy rating and a price target, that he wasn't saying, you should do that. He's just making a prediction about what might happen. But Henry's a very smart person, so he certainly understands um, what a regular person seeing Henry Blodgett says Amazon is currently worth $240, but it will be worth $400, what that means. Perhaps part of the reason why Henry won't quite say he was misleading individual investors is everybody was doing it. He wasn't taking brown bags of cash. I mean, this wasn't like a pump and dump. It was a much more accepted practice on Wall Street that these analysts were on both sides. Even Eric Dinalo, the dude who investigated Henry and saw every moment he called a stock a piece of shit, even Eric gives Henry that. The internet industry and dot-com was moving quickly. It wasn't um, clear who the winners and the losers were going to be. When dot-com started to implode, it was very hard to reverse those ratings quickly enough, for instance. And even then, you see in the memo that the economic pressures, you know, were were very, very great. I got to say here, Henry is like doing fine. And as your mom always told you, just because everyone's doing it doesn't mean it's right. But focusing on the system is important because let's remember, this investigation just made official something that everybody knew. This wasn't stated to the public, but everyone inside knew that, that in theory, the analyst was publishing research that would be of interest to institutional and even um, individual investors. I read a great law review article from 2004 about this whole scandal by Barbara Moses, who is now a federal judge in the Southern District of New York. It's titled, They Were Shocked, Shocked, The Discovery of Analyst Conflicts on Wall Street. She writes that a cynical observer of this huge settlement might be reminded of that scene in Casablanca where the character, Captain Renault, a longtime gambler, stands in his friend Rick's underground casino and says, I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. There is a whole system, right? The banks, the press, CNBC, all had incentive to sort of keep the game going. 
keeping analysts and investment bankers close was good for the game. Just, you know, no one felt the need to clue in regular people investors, the folks who were putting their savings into the market. It's a useful experience to live through because you're like, oh, people in positions of authority who look good on TV and wear a nice suit, turns out they may not know anything. Or they know much more than they care to say. The dot-com hype, that fire, it was built by a lot of people with authority. People who worked in systems that relied on the hype in many ways to make money. As long as everyone was going along with it, as long as everyone was bringing kindling to the fire, they were all going to stay gathered around, basking in its flickering warmth. Next time, we're going to look at how the push to go for broke trickled down to the dot-com employees and how it changed the way we all think about work. Oh, if I work for this company, if I make the right bet on a company, then somehow I will be protected because I'll have, like, stock money, right? But it's so risky. It goes from, like, I did all of this committed work over the course of decades to I happen to get a job at a company that sells whatever on the internet. Fingers crossed, things will turn out for me, right? It's such a crapshoot. Sources for this episode include John Cassidy's 2003 New Yorker article, The Investigation. If you want to deep dive into the Henry Blodgett story, a link to the article is in our show notes. Thanks also to Sarah Choi, Maria Filipakis, and Matt Gall. Special thanks to Epic's Joshua Behrman. Charlotte Silver is our associate producer. Our consulting producer is Melise Tusseray. Go for Broke is produced by Bridget Armstrong, Megan Kinane, and Zach Mack. Isaac Kestenbaum is our editor. Anil Dash is our editorial consultant for the series. Nathan Miller engineered this episode. Gautam Trikashan composed our theme song. Art Chung is our showrunner. Our executive producer is Nishat Kurwa. Gopher Broke is a production of Epic and the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you liked this episode, and I really hope you did, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Or tell a friend, tell anyone you know, somebody on the street, whatever. And subscribe for free to the series on your favorite podcast app. I'm Julia Furlan. And a quick note, this is for the people living through this moment in October of 2020. If you're listening in the future, congratulations. For those of us in October of 2020, next week is the election. And I just got to say, I don't think anybody has the capacity. So we will be back with a new show on November 12th. Thank you so much. And please go vote.